Today on episode number 459 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Engaging Students Through Collaborative Research Projects with Rebecca Glazier and Matthew Patrika. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Matthew T. Patrika and Rebecca A. Glazier. Matthew is an associate professor of political science at Florida State University. His research examines how people's political choices are influenced by their friends, family, coworkers, and other acquaintances. He also studies methods for improving the validity and reliability of survey measures. He teaches courses on political behavior, political psychology, media and politics, social network analysis, and research methods. Rebecca Glazier is a political science professor in the School of Public Affairs at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. She studies the scholarship of teaching and learning and is passionate about improving the quality of online education. Dr. Glazier is the author of Connecting in the Online Classroom, Building Rapport Between Teachers and Students. She's also the director of the Little Rock Congregations Study, a long-term community-based research project on religion and community engagement. Rebecca and Matt, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. So happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Matt, I'd love you to take us back to the beginning. How did you all get started in collective data projects? So what Rebecca and I are trying to share with as many people as possible is this basic structure for assignments that started to really take form as a model for building and creating new assignments uh, right around the time of March 2020, when I was thrust thrust into online teaching, and I always worry about how I can make sure that my students are taking the abstract concepts from the classes that I'm teaching and finding like concrete ways to understand them and con- connect with them. And it felt like moving online for me, it, it was my first time teaching online. Everything that was abstract became even less tangible, and so I needed some mechanism that I could use to help students make sense of the the concepts that are so important for the class. And at that point in time, I was reading some of the work that Rebecca had written about um, building rapport between instructors and students. And I was realizing that the assignments that I was using in my in-person classes could do a lot more if I just expanded them to to provide more individualized feedback to each student. Matt, you were talking about the individualized feedback. And just this morning, we had a panel with students at my university talking about artificial intelligence. They were so amazing, by the way. I just have, I just have to say that. And at the end, there was an opportunity for questions. And so I asked them how they felt because they, they were asked to predict 
or to observe how faculty, how their professors might feel about artificial intelligence and them using it or not. And so then I asked them how they felt about faculty. I didn't say it quite exactly this way, but I was trying to ask a neutral question. (laughs) I'm not doing a good job of it now, but how do you feel if your professor were to rely on some of the for-profit textbook companies that provide AI feedback? And because the first time I ever heard about it, I mean, to me, it's like, like, like a horror movie or like, like, but I'm trying to keep my face neutral and everything. And I wasn't sure what was happening in terms of because I don't don't know a lot of these students very well of like, are they trying to behave themselves? But But I'm thinking like, feedback is so important, Matt. And it's so often not scalable and not personalized. So that is one of the reasons I get so excited about your project. But before I keep talking, Rebecca, (laughs) why don't you tell us why you're so excited about these projects that you've been working on? Yeah, I think that this is really needed at this moment in time because so much of higher education is turning to big tech for solutions and thinking that we need these major companies and huge investments of money But for me and the research that I do, it has always come down to personal relationships. And when we make those connections with students in our classroom, when we create a community, when students feel like we care about them and their success, because we're doing things like calling them by name and giving them individualized feedback, that's where you really see the magic in terms of their success and their learning. But Matt was trying to do that with big classes. And I think all of us, when we think, giving individualized feedback, even on a small scale, but especially on a large scale, it can sound really overwhelming. So Matt with these projects was able to create these individualized reports using our code that he wrote so that students could contribute to big picture projects and then get individualized feedback. And so this is really flipping the model on its head of what the ed tech industry is telling us right now, that we have to pay big amounts of money and get these outside companies to come into our classrooms and do things for us. This is totally professor created from the ground up with free access code in a publicly available article that is peer reviewed, but open access. So anyone can check out the code and anyone can implement this in their classrooms. I can remember talking to faculty who teach in a a STEM program who were talking about the power that it was for some members of, of their class communities to be part of that bigger picture, that that they're, that what they asserted was this is going to allow us to bring more women, more people of color into these fields because they're not as motivated by the individual driver. So I love that aspect of it as well. You're getting the feedback in there. You're getting that sense of community and also the sense of I'm part of a bigger thing. Matt, I'm realizing that we could be speaking more hypothetical right now, and it might be helpful to get us a tangible example. So tell us about just one of these collaborative projects that you do in just one of your classes, even though I know you've been doing multiple. But just give us give us a slice of an example of what this looks like in practice. Yeah, so the very first version of this that I ever used was really taking from my mentor, Walt Stone, who's now a retired professor at UC Davis. And back when I was a TA for him, he had this assignment. So John Deere wrote a book called In Defense of Negativity. And he's arguing that negative ads in presidential campaigns are actually more useful for citizens than positive ads. Most people really tend to hate negative ads. But Gear's argument is that negative ads tend to be more informative and help voters make a, a 
better comparison of the candidates. And so he assigned the book. And along with the book, he had students use John Gear's codebook to analyze presidential ads themselves so they could get a sense not just of what Gear is arguing, but really see it firsthand and make a decision for themselves. Do they agree with Gear? So essentially, the assignment then is taking this codebook, watching these presidential ads, and classifying them in a variety of ways in terms of how informative they are, whether they're focusing on you know, policy issues versus character traits, et cetera. And so each student is now gathering data. And so for a long time, I was using some version of that where students would submit the data and I would aggregate it up and we would spend a class time talking about the results and students could share their results and I could talk about the class averages and we could compare it to what John Gear found back, you know, he was analyzing presidential elections in the 1980s, 90s, et cetera. And so we can have a really interesting classroom conversation. And what I realized moving online was students that generated all this data with just a little bit more work, I could provide them a personalized report showing them, you know, what they found, comparing it to averages from the class, comparing it to what John Gear found in his data. And so suddenly, with not a huge amount of additional effort, I could be meeting each student where they are and showing them what they're finding and, and helping them see that, A, they're a part of a whole so that their, their work was contributing to the class averages, but also seeing like the places where their perceptions were differing from their class so that we could target either, you know, it's possible that they have unique insight into the ad or it's possible that they're missing things that other people are seeing. And so you can really help everyone sort of level up in a way that they couldn't on their own. And is this one of those things that would, so I, if I participate in this, and I, I love this, so there's this body of work by this researcher, so he's he's got what he's done, and then you're bringing the slice in of the class and also the slice that's me as an individual. To what extent is it my forming of my own perceptions and my own ideas? And to what extent is there a right answer when I get done? So at what point do I veer off into that is just factually not accurate? And to what extent is it, oh, you brought a new insight? Because you mentioned that's the idea of like them bringing new insights that are fresh and unique versus I suspect there are probably some of this that you are attempting to teach them a method of analysis that could be applied correctly or not. Yeah, so that... There's no single answer to that question. <laughs> but I would say it's, it's, Darn it. <laughs> I think, you know, th that's one of the things that I, like, I would hope to share with other people who are considering implementing something like this is you can build in both and triangulate. So what I mean by that is you might have some questions that are very clearly uh, objectively correct or not. And those kinds of questions can serve as a flag where you will notice students who might need extra help on those things. And then you can also use that to break down the data for the questions that are more subjective and see if there's differences in subjective perceptions based on whether they are understanding the objective things correctly. And this is also where you can build in that um, automated feedback that can be so useful. So in my statistics class, I can show, you know, you got this one incorrect and here's what you entered and here's where it looks like you went off track so that they can target the specific spots where they need to go back and work if they want to understand that particular concept. 
Rebecca, we've talked a little bit about the value that is coming about with these with these projects. Would you share a little bit more about about some of the benefits that we might not be seeing from these initial first impressions? Yeah, I think what's so cool about this is that it's not just for political science classes, right? If you're teaching a poetry class, you can have students go out and look for symbolism in a bunch of different kinds of poems. Or if you're teaching a biology class, you can have students go out and count birds in their neighborhood. And in each case, the individual student is coming and contributing to a broader project and then getting the individualized feedback that makes them feel like they're part of a classroom community. And that's what Matt and I found when we looked at the data across a couple hundred students that Matt taught over a few years. And we found statistically significant results that students enjoyed these classes more, they were learning more in these classes, and they felt like the professor cared about them and cared about their learning. And so I know that all of us probably as professors, if we have been teaching for any amount of time, we've probably had experiences where we have connected with students and where we really felt like we've made a difference for them. And those individual experiences, I think, can be really powerful, those kind of anecdotal experiences. But I think what is really valuable about a project like this is that we can bring statistical evidence and say, making these connections, making this effort to bring students into a collaborative project to show them their contribution and to connect with them on a personal level, giving them these individualized reports, that really makes a statistically significant difference for them. It's not just an anecdote. It's not just a feel-good story. It's real data. I'd like to ask a clarifying question, and then I want to I want to bridge back to something you just said, Rebecca. The clarifying question is we've been talking about it in terms of collecting data that that is maybe from a body of research externally. So Rebecca, you mentioned being able to count birds. I know that that at least in the United States we have I'm not sure I'm gonna get the name right, but the National Bird Counting Count Count. I forget what it's called. Oh, I'm really failing society right now. I'm gonna look it up and I'm gonna put it in the show notes. But anyway, there might be a body of of some sort of national or international kind of research body that we can we can compare our slice of our class to. Do these collaborative learning projects go class over class so that I can see how my unique learning community this term or this semester might compare to last year or the year before or before that? Yes. So that to me is one of the great values in using these. So it, it can take quite a bit of work to design it initially and to refine it. But once you've got it running, each new semester, it's quite straightforward to run it again, making some modifications based on feedback you got the last time. And over time, then you develop this beautiful time series that can be very engaging for students to compare themselves to previous semesters. And, you know, it's rarely going to be entirely clear when differences are occurring because of something that has fundamentally changed in what you're examining versus the students are different and they're perceiving things differently, or you talked about the assignment slightly differently, but you can have those conversations, which are quite valuable too. And so just for example, I update the presidential ads uh, assignment every time there's a new presidential campaign. And so, you know, we can compare how the 2020 ads stacked up to the 2016 ads, but multiple things are changing. And so we can talk about it. How much is 
a difference in the ads that were being run, how much is a difference is in the types of students and the things that students are seeing. And so it, it's a really useful conversation for talking about the evidence that the the John Gear is bringing in his argument, right? Relating it back to the, the course material. Mm. All right. I wanted to go back, Rebecca, to something that you talked about, just the value of students enjoying more what they're doing, which which I suspect a correlation between enjoyment and feeling like I I got to participate. You mentioned, you know, participating in this bigger thing. And then the second element that you talked about feeling like professors cared about them more and cared about their learning. Would love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts and your wrestling with the idea of automating some things so that it's more doable, right? <laughs> so that we can reduce reduce the workload that is automatable. <laughs> and then and then which parts cannot, should not be automated. And just in terms of your thinking and wrestling with the human element of feedback and the parts of feedback that really we should be considering automating. Yeah, that's such a great question and something that I think that we should be wrestling with. And this idea about connecting with students and and building relationships and helping students feel valued and like their professor cares about them and to help them enjoy the class is really something that you know I have I have cared a lot about and have studied and and I I wrote a book about in in 2021 called Connecting in the Online Classroom. So this is something that I have put a lot of thought and energy to. And I think we should use technology to our advantage as much as we can. So I am in favor of automating, but I think that what we really need to do is make sure that it's authentic to us at every step of the way. And that's why I love what Matt has created here, because if you know Matt, you know that he loves data and that he is amazingly good at statistics. And so he created a way to connect with students that involves data and involves like telling them statistically, like what's going on with their contribution to this broader collaborative data project. And that's so authentic to who he is as a person and as a professor. And so like I automate communication with my students using nail merge all the time, but I will write very sincere messages in my own voice that give specific feedback depending on what their discussion grade is in the class, how they did on the last exam, how their score changed from exam one to exam two, telling them, hey, I'm really seeing a significant drop here between exam one and exam two. What happened there? Is there anything I can do to help you? And so everyone who dropped, you know, seven points or more gets that message, but it's a very sincere message and it's in my voice. And yes, I automate it for everyone who had that particular drop, but I'm using technology to my advantage, but I still really care about those students who had that drop and it's going out to all of them. And I get a really good response from them because they're hearing my voice say to them that I care about them. So I think we should use technology as much as we can, because as faculty members, we have a lot on our plates. That's such a helpful distinction that you just made for me. I have felt guilty at times. In Canvas, that's the learning management system we use. You can There's a feature in the gradebook that says message students who. So I'll try to be super explicit. You are receiving this email because of this reason. And Rebecca, I don't think it matters 
any which way that I word it, I don't seem to be able to prevent the phenomenon from happening that they think I just emailed them. I mean, I have explicitly tried to not claim personalized authorship, and yet there is. So I think you just helped me make that distinction, the care when it can scale versus I suspect there are times when the the care cannot scale. And I'm just going to make a quick reference. I'm going to be careful how I say this because it's too, too jarring of a change in our conversation. And I know also Matt has something to add here. But, but there was recently a devastating national event in the United States that a university decided to write about it to the public using artificial intelligence. That probably was not the greatest choice in judgment to use artificial intelligence for what it's best at. I've read a lot of subsequent articles about people talking about norms and that we haven't really figured out as a society yet what our norms are around that. But that was definitely an extreme example of a mismatch of where automation and care can come in. Matt, I know you have something to share about this topic as well. Well, I just wanted to follow up on one thing that Rebecca said. For me, the use of automation is so important because it's systematic and therefore it ensures that I don't miss individual students who need attention. Now, I can automate specific checks, right? So like Rebecca had mentioned, looking for people who, you know, seven points down or or something like that. So so that's something that we can be systematic about. But then obviously we have to be thoughtful about what other ways should we be looking for students who need additional help. And But like one thing that I was able to do because of automation that I wouldn't have had the time to do is not just target students who maybe did worse than others, but also automatically send students who did particularly well in a way that I just, in my limited amount of time I have for teaching, often that will get put aside. And so that's something that I can routinize using something like an R script. And suddenly now I can get help the students who are performing well also feel connected. Talk more about, Matt, how feedback might ebb and flow in a particular class. Give me an example of maybe one or two assignments I might be working on in that class, and then what kind of feedback I might expect to to receive. Yeah, so there's two stages or two sets of feedback. The first was you know, coming directly from these assignments. And so in my research methods class, it's a quantitative class that focuses a lot on statistics like regression analysis. And so in that case, what I need to ensure is that students are not just memorizing definitions, but they understand what's going into the regression. And so I have them gather data from their own lives, go out and you know collect things that's things that you see, and then I can provide them feedback and show them how their results compare to other students. And I can show them like where they're making mistakes. And so that's like one version where it's individualized, going to them and saying, you use this particular example, and this was your bag of M&Ms, and this was the, the average or the proportion that were orange in your bag. This is how it compares to all the other students in the class, right? And so I can teach them something like the central limit theorem that way. Now, the other way, the second way that I can provide feedback, once I created those R scripts, I realized I can do that for many other things too. And so I can provide bi-weekly updates to every single student. I've got 150 students and I can say, here's where you're doing really well. Here's where I'm noticing you're struggling a little bit. Here are resources for people who are struggling on this particular thing. And so I can send that through email 
And they get this direct feedback that, again, I can't do when I'm also teaching two other classes in, in nearly as systematic a way. And so, again, that can't be the only form of feedback, but it's a really important source of support for everybody. And Rebecca, anything that you wanted to share in terms of feedback? And and I'm thinking specifically about this the series of projects and this work that you're doing being offering something different to society than the the ones who might be doing the for-profit textbooks, the add-ons, the labs, the simulations and all of that. Something unique about this type of, of research and this type of feedback to students. Yeah, I think this feedback is really valuable because it's helping students see how they're contributing to a larger project that everyone in their class is a part of. So it's really helping build a classroom community. So they don't feel like they're off in a textbook from a third-party provider giving automated messages. They feel like they're part of a classroom community and everyone's doing these same tasks and they can see how they fit into that broader project. And I just love Matt's point about also getting feedback to students who are doing well, because I think so often we forget them. We're busy like doing triage to help the students who are struggling. And we forget that sometimes those students who are doing really well, or even the students who are on the cusp of an A or a B, they need a little bit of cheerleading. And that can help them be more successful or help them power through to the end. One challenge that can sometimes come up for me when I'm attempting to experiment, first of all, let's be clear, I think what you're doing is so cool. I don't even think I've remotely experimented with something like this. But when, I, when I'm being more experimental with the types of projects, and especially if they involve other students and wanting to have that, that kind of experience that you're talking about, is timing of things. So I'm wanting to be flexible with deadlines. And yet, if you are overly flexible with, I mean, so, okay, here's my simple example. It's, it's, it's months after my class started and I, I'm teaching business ethics and I, and I had asked for them to contribute to a class playlist and I hadn't heard from all the students, so I still haven't sent it to them. <laughs> this is the extent to which I'm trying to compare this magnificent thing you're doing to my, my small teaching life over here. But I'm thinking like, that was not a great plan. Like, I, I mean, why did I not just send it out and then... <laughs> And the next couple of students came in, you know, you could add to it. So I don't know any thoughts that you have around how you're navigating deadlines in that I don't think we want to leave students behind. I think COVID's taught us so much, at least taught me so much about, you know, wanting to be flexible, but there is absolutely such a thing as too much flexibility. So what are your thoughts around how we can navigate that? So I definitely agree that timeliness is important for these to be successful. So, you know, if someone doesn't have their data entered by the time that I'm aggregating it, either for the class discussion or for sharing the individualized reports, then they're not going to make it into the report. And so the most important thing for me is giving students enough lead time so that they can get it done and also introducing it in a way so that they see how not necessarily easy, but so so that they, they recognize that it's not too overwhelming just to get started. And so ideally, it's built in a way that they can do a little bit each day. And so they can get it done in a relatively short amount of time without becoming you know overwhelmed because it's too large a project. 
So the times when things have gone wrong is when it was the first time I've created the assignment and you know maybe they only had two weeks before it was due. Then there's not enough room for mistakes, either on my end in creating the assignment. Sometimes you don't think of the different ways that people might enter to the data or on their end, you know, deadline slipping by, et cetera. And is there any advice that you have in terms of when inevitably someone just can't? I mean, is that is that in any ways to make adjustments that you have found to be some way of like not not having people have to have such significant downsides to missing deadlines? Yeah, I mean, I think one big advantage of the individualized feedback is that it's easy to update and send them a report whenever they submit their data. So the other students won't benefit from the data that they gather because it can't make it into their reports. And likewise, the student who's submitting late will, it won't be nearly as engaging during the class where we talk about Mm. everyone else's experience. But on the other hand, because things happen, it's quite easy to just run the R script again with the new data. And then they still get the individualized feedback that they would have missed if I was just presenting it to the class on that one day. So Rebecca, you were talking earlier about some other examples where you could see this. And I'm so fascinated by just how we can collectively expand each other's imagination. So that was really a fun part of the conversation. I'd love to have each of you share because we're saying what could be done, but I'd love to have each of you share just a few more examples of what has been done. So what what are the specific kinds of assignments, specific times of collaborative research projects that, that are really tangible that, that just have been kind of fun for you to experiment with? Yeah, so Matt and I are both political scientists, so we definitely lean towards the politics angle. So news articles are another one to have students look at news articles and have them look at the content in them or look at the tone of coverage or look at you know how partisan the coverage might be and and having students look at, at articles and, and, and what exactly is being covered over a period of a couple of weeks. You can start to see that change across different sources as well. What kinds of sources are covering what kinds of stories that can be a, something really interesting for students to engage with and lead to really great class discussions also. And it also can lead to interesting insights, as you were talking about earlier, Bonnie, about what is the right answer and what are students seeing through the lens of their own biases in in coding those news stories as well. And Matt, I want to hear your your answer to other other projects and stuff, if, if something's coming to mind around political science. Yeah, so just two more ideas. One is I teach a class about social influence in politics. And so the assignment I use would work well in something like a sociology class as well, where what I do is I have students enter data about their own social networks. And then in the class, I'm using a lot of jargon from network science, concepts like centrality and modularity and community detection. And so what I can do is I as I introduce a new concept, I can show them using their own networks. And so, again, it makes these these really intangible things much more tangible. It says these little nodes, these are people that you personally know. And and so we can talk about these concepts in a more tractable way. Um, And then a second one related to this idea of information literacy is in my research methods class. I teach this idea of, you know, confounding variables. And so I have students find examples of journalism reporting science and talk about 
the extent to which they think that the relationship that's being described might be spurious and propose potential confounding variables. And so what you get then is this crowdsourced list of many, 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 many different articles that students can then pluck through and, and find, oh, here's the independent variable. Here's the dependent variable. Here's a potential confounding variable. And so it's really creative. And the more students you have, the more valuable it is for everybody else in the class, which is you know, kind of the opposite of so many things where the more students you have, the harder it is to provide valuable feedback for everybody. Oh my gosh, both of these sound amazing. LinkedIn used to have something like what you're talking about. I think what you're talking about in the no- with the nodes and the network, they don't have it anymore, but it would be fascinating to me. And it felt like a glimpse at a history of my career and the relationships and then how they overlap and it went away and I was so sad. And so now I'm fascinated by this. All right. So we have to get ourselves disciplined here because I think I could talk to you for the next 10 years and just be getting started. If we want to get started, like how would we dip our toes into something like that? What would be your sort of assignment to us if we want to experiment and learn more? Well, so I would start simply by thinking about the kinds of assignments you give that aggregation is going to be beneficial, right? Where so sharing with other students, the collective, what everybody has found. And then from there, you don't need to learn a programming language like Python or R. Like Rebecca mentioned, a lot of this you can do with mail merge. So if you have access to some sort of license with like Microsoft, for example, you can start to provide these personalized reports that way instead. And so obviously it still takes work just getting whatever data students enter, say on the learning management system into Excel. But you know, if you use something like Canvas, you can download that and it's relatively straightforward. Now, if you can learn a programming language, it becomes much easier. And so we could certainly, that would be a different conversation about how to get started with a programming language. And Rebecca, what's your answer to sort of how people might just start dabbling? Yeah, I think Matt has some good suggestions. Thinking carefully about your assignments, jumping into R because Matt's done a bunch of hard work to make it super easy for you if you want to use his freely available code. Give our open access article a read. That might give you some good ideas. And then I would say you could do it simply with like a Google form and an add-on to Google Sheets. And you could have students enter enter codes or enter data that way. And then you could send out information in a mail merge through Google Sheets. So it doesn't have to be complicated. You can make it happen really easily. Thank you both so much. This is our time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And since so many conversations on the podcast and so many at my university have been around artificial intelligence, I I think sometimes we ended a session with a student panel today and someone ended, I haven't watched it yet, but with like a Saturday Night Live clip because I think we all needed to lighten it up a little bit. So if you need to lighten it up a little bit with regard to AI, I was captivated by this artificial intelligence Instagram account, and it is called Captain Creep. And this individual is, this is the, this is their bio. Welcome to Creep Mart, open 24-7. Nothing is real. Nothing is for sale. AI generated things and stuff. And the images on the Captain Creep Instagram are priceless. They're all these imaginatory, imaginatory, imagine, 
I can't even use words today. There are all these toys that were created in this person's imagination using the help of artificial intelligence. So the one I'm looking at today is a very old-fashioned looking television with a knob that kind of looks like an old-fashioned microwave. And the toy is named Chabby. And then inside of the old-fashioned looking television set is what looks like I don't know, a green creature with very, very large ears and and bright wide-eyed. And then another one that I'm I'm seeing right now is called Crawl. And it looks like a dinosaur. And I can't even read the bottom of the thing. Um, progressive glasses on computer monitor. Sometimes we get it. Sometimes we don't. But then there's sort of blurred out in the background, these other creatures. It is a hoot. They look like toys from maybe the... 1950s. And again, they're all fictional. You can't buy these. Nothing is for sale. All artificial intelligence inspired are are created. Um, Sumi, spelled S-U-I-M-E, Soupy. And it looks like slime, just this green series of slime creatures inside of a jar. Oh, it's so much fun. So if you need a little bit lightheartedness around your artificial intelligence, AI created art, and you want to laugh a little and just marvel at the imagination here, um, that's my recommendation. And I am going to pass it over to Matt for his recommendations. So I was thinking in a very similar vein, but but much older than that. So the thing I wanted to recommend was the album that I was listening to when I was first creating these assignments back in like March 2020. Um, so this is an album called The Expanding Universe by Lori Spiegel. And the reason this is similar to to your recommendation, Bonnie, is this is algorithmically generated music. So it's not AI. This is this is actually so. Lori Spiegel created this music back in the I think it was like early 1970s when she was working at Bell Labs. So these giant giant computers. She was creating these algorithms to generate. It's it's essentially ambient music. So there's no like there's no words, and so it's something that I find really really like useful for working and it's it's not like a lot of ambient music's kind of like minor key kind of negative this is super like optimistic and exciting music and so it's something that like i find really uh useful to put on at the start of the day to shift into work mode and so i I strongly recommend it for anyone who likes weird ambient music (laughs) it sounds marvelous thank you so much and rebecca what would you like to recommend today my recommendation is a book, but it's not directly related to teaching, but it's a book that has made me a much better person. So I feel like it is kind of rec- related to teaching. And it's a book by Cheryl Strayed called Tiny Beautiful Things. And I have gifted it so often, I feel like I should buy it in bulk. And there's a, a chapter in there that is called The Future Has an Ancient Heart. And it is kind of a commencement address or a, a, a letter to students who are going to graduate. And I think that's a that's a good one to start with if you're thinking about reading that book. But it's a book that is close to my heart that I really love. So I would recommend it for sure. Matt and Rebecca, thank you so much for this generous and invigorating conversation. I'm so glad to be connected with you. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Thank for you so much. Rebecca Glazier and Matthew Patrika, thank you once again for coming on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support 
was provided by the amazing Sierra Smith. And I just want to thank you so much for listening to the episode, for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. And if you've yet to sign up for the weekly email, head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, and you'll get all kinds of goodness that doesn't show up in the regular episode show notes. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.